Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Eleven years. You realize that eleven years we've been doing this radio program is no better now than it was eleven years ago. Oh. It is the standard of a beleaguered and tempest-tossed true crime industry. We got, we got true crime for you today. I am the legendary Burl Bear, the man hacking and wheezing over there. Mr. Hack and Wheeze. Said Mark me, fact checker, Hack and Wheeze. Yeah, Mark C.G. Boyer. Hell of a lover. Retired police chief, Paula May. Hi, how are you? Better and better every day in every way. Awesome. Uh, you know, I've got a, a bit of advice I try to give everyone in the world to make their life easier. There's, there's two pieces of advice. Okay. One is never get a disease that has its own magazine. <laughs> is don't live in a town named after a steak, like Salisbury. <laughs> that can be deadly. Now, you have a book that is already number one in every strange category on Amazon except flower arranging. <laughs> no, it's number two. In that number case. two in flower arranging, and uh, it's number one in uh, uh, legal maneuvering, long-term investigations, <laughs> uh, strangest motivations for killing. It's not the strangest one, but this is a pretty strange one. Uh, tragic case. Uh, I'm going to give the audience just a little bit of a, a tease here because it's caught my attention because it was so weird that I was going, what the heck is going on in this town anyway? You got this woman, Kay Wedden. Is that her name? How you pronounce her last name? W-E-D? It's Whedon. Kay Whedon. Kay Whedon. She's a 40-something. That's a polite yes. way of putting it. She says she's 35. She's 40-something, single mom. <laughs> she teaches high school in Salisbury, North Carolina. Everyone likes her. I mean, maybe some of the students yes. don't, but, I mean, she doesn't have any, like, real enemies. <laughs> all of a sudden, all hell's breaking loose in this woman's life. Her home, her car, there's people shooting into her house. It's, it's crazy. And she's got a hot new boyfriend, right? Well, he's a cold new boyfriend now. That's uh, right. the Swedish guy, uh, Victor right. Gunnarsson. Now, all of a sudden, Victor, the love of her life, he, he up and vanishes. This, right. this story gets stranger and stranger. And you happen to be a law enforcement person. Yes. And you have wound up in the middle of all this. It was my lucky day on call. Yeah, I better was. Oh, are you a lucky woman? Try to make sense I out am. of this one. So, what? What? When you got the call, what was the call about? Um, well, the call came in as uh, a survey crew had found a body in the woods, or rather, a pair of bare feet sticking up out of the snow. And um, the snow wasn't terribly deep. You could see the outline of a of an adult underneath the snow. Hmm. So. Um, it was on a Friday afternoon, and everything was really quiet. It was cold. The, the roads were bad. Weather was terrible. And um, so when we got there, it was pretty uh, secluded area. Mm -hmm. It was close to uh, the Blue Ridge Parkway, but being wintertime, nobody was traveling on it, and the most of it was closed at the time. So the nearest highway was uh, US-421, and it was pretty quiet as well. So we got to the scene um, 3 o'clock or so in the afternoon, and... Um, I mean, it was obvious that he had been there a while, and, and we uh, it took us a few days to even identify who he was. I would imagine so. If there's no one traveling in that area, and a lot of the roads are closed because of the weather, how do you get a dead body there? Well, as it turns out, he had been there about a month. Hmm. That explains why he didn't show up for dinner when he had a date with uh, 
Okay, right. Yeah, well, I, right. They had they didn't have plans, and uh, she thought he was just uh, avoiding her. That maybe he had changed her his mind um, about their relationship or about seeing her. And so she kind of uh, went by his apartment a couple times just to you know check and see if she could see him out somewhere. He had a bicycle in addition to his car, so she thought maybe he was out riding his bike. But um, both times then she went by, obviously he wasn't wasn't there. Although his car was there. Mm. And um, so a few days later, mysteriously, she uh, learned that her mother had also been murdered. So her thoughts were consumed with that from that point Well, I would imagine so. She she knows that her her boyfriend's body has been found. Well, not, not yet. Not yet. Although he was kidnapped and we believe murdered on during the night of uh, December 3rd or you know the morning of Saturday December 4th and then her mother is murdered on December 8th and found on December 9th but Victor Gunnerson's body was not found until July 7th wow I mean, I'm sorry, January 7th, January 7th. Well, that's, that's still that's a whole other thing. It's a new year by then. But, I mean, this must be very traumatic for her. Her mother is murdered, and then her boyfriend's Absolutely. body is found. That's a real double right. whammy right there. Yes, and she was just, she was grieving already for her mother. Um, she had been through a lot with um, almost a year of the threats, receiving anonymous letters, receiving anonymous threatening phone calls. Um, her house was shot into. There was vandalism at her house um, on her uh, garage door in her car. Um, it, it was damaged and it was also uh, spray painted. And so she's gone through a lot the previous month. But that, that's enough to not, drive you nuts right there. I mean, all of a sudden, yeah. this woman's having a fairly normal life in a fairly yes. normal place with a lot of snow. And all of a sudden, her mother's murdered, her boyfriend's disappeared. Now, her boyfriend, he was a strange piece of work anyway. Right. He was. He has a story all his own, Victor oh, Gunnarsson. Yes. Uh, he was actually charged with the assassination of Sweden's Prime Minister, Olaf Palme, in 1986. And uh, he spent some time in custody there, and due to a lack of evidence, was subsequently released. He did sue the uh, <laughs> Swedish government and received a um, relatively small settlement. And because of all the media attention that he and his family were receiving, he decided um, to come to the United States for uh, political asylum. No kidding. Well, when you try to assassinate the leader of a country, it does impact your reputation. <laughs> even if you don't assassinate him and you get charged with it, yeah, either way. Well, you look at this guy's background, the pamphlets he had, his political philosophies, he was just kind of the right to Vatilla the Hun. Yes. And he was a big fan of Lyndon LaRouche. Am I correct? He, he was. He was. And he was not silent about his opinions. He was very vocal. And um, he had openly criticized the prime minister and his policies for some time. So because he was close to the area where the assassination took place, he was uh, zeroed in on very quickly. Well, I would imagine so. I don't, I don't know how familiar you are with Lyndon LaRouche. My only, Not a lot. My only exposure to him, which was probably seconded only to the virus, is that <laughs> I, I read one of his books. Now, I happen to be a member of the, the Baha'i Faith. And he said the basement of the Baha'i House of Worship in Wilmette, Illinois, was where all the revolutionaries stashed their weapons. 
<laughs> I've been in that basement several times doing some video work, and I never found any of those weapons of mass destruction we supposedly had in our religious building there. Um, but uh, they said he wasn't really uh, have prejudice against the religion. He just had prejudice against just about everybody. So, right, we couldn't take it personally. Right. Uh, so, I mean, this would be an indication that maybe your boyfriend was, uh, you know, a few uh, bricks and mortars short of an outhouse. But well, I, she was fascinated by him. He was a great talker. He um, captivated audiences with, with his speaking, whether he knew what he was talking about or not. <laughs> um, he was quite charming. More style than substance. Story of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, maybe he used to be in radio. That would explain a lot. <laughs> that, that, that leaves residual damage. So she falls madly in love with this guy, and then he apparently dumps her, but he doesn't because he's busy being murdered. Her mom right. is murdered. She's being shot at. She's being harassed. It makes no sense. Well, how do you right. investigate something like that? You're the investigator. Well, it was uh, interesting because all that had occurred in my jurisdiction was the location of the body. The body, um, uh, he was murdered there and left there, but everyone who knew anything about him was located a couple of hours away. So um, we became uh, very involved in another ongoing investigation that took place in Rowan County or the city of Salisbury, and that was uh, the murder of Catherine Miller and the missing persons report of Victor Gunnarsson. Hmm. So he had been kidnapped and, and brought into jurisdiction where he was murdered. So it was our um, responsibility to investigate the case, but all the witnesses and everything that um, had anything to do with the case as far as us getting started all took place in Salisbury. So uh, immediately I had to leave my jurisdiction and, and were interviewing people and gathering evidence in another jurisdiction. And that was particularly interesting because um, we worked with the law enforcement there who personally knew um, Kay Whedon and her uh, associates. Hmm. Well, was you hitting a lot of dead ends? I mean, how many people could have? Well, I, I have a hunch who killed him. Probably not. No. Um, at first, we were um, focusing on the fact that he had been charged with the assassination of the Swedish Prime Minister. And so gathering a lot of that information um, was sometimes complicated. Um, it was intriguing getting to work with um, different agencies gathering information. Interpol, for instance, I had not worked closely with them before, so that was interesting. Um, but then another suspect developed in the case, well, a suspect developed in the case that also had risen to the surface in the Catherine Miller homicide, the, the mother of Kay Whedon that was um, killed in Salisbury. Now, how was she murdered? She was shot twice in the head in her home, in her kitchen, um, after she got home from work one evening. Now, Catherine Miller was um, a sweet little grandmotherly type. She was 77 years old and still working full-time, you know, 8 to 5, Monday through Friday. She was uh, working in accounting at a refrigeration firm in Salisbury and rarely, if ever, missed a day of work. So she was found when her supervisor at work um, 
had realized that she had not shown up for work on this, I believe it was a Wednesday morning. And um, so they had driven by her house and saw her car in, in the drive and had gone to the local high school to uh, where Kay Whedon worked to speak with her and pick her up and ask her if she would go with them to her mother's house to check on her because of the circumstances. And they uh, also called the sheriff's office. So when they arrived with Kay Whedon at the house, the sheriff's department was already on scene. And um, they made entry into the house and found Mrs. Mueller shot twice in the head in her kitchen. Well, see, now this gets really bizarre. I mean, I've never been a law enforcement officer. I've never even played one on television. But I do know that when you have a, a nice little old lady with no known enemies who shot twice in the head in her kitchen in the same house that people have been putting bullets in and uh, sending threatening notes to the people who live there, there's something wrong. Oh, yeah. And I can see why, because of this guy having, uh, you know, been charged with attempting to kill the prime minister over in Sweden... There may be political overtones to all this. It would kind of derail the investigation a bit. Right. Well, Kay Whedon was the common denominator between the Catherine Miller homicide and Victor Patterson's disappearance, um, obviously being Catherine's daughter and um, being the last person that we found to have seen and interacted with Victor Gunnarsson. In fact, he had come to our house the night before, and they had visited, had a date, and um, they'd even sat outside... Um, she had a fire pit area, kind of like a little patio area beside her house. And um, her teenage son, Jason, and his friends, and Kay and Victor, had sat around the fire pit chatting and, and having, a, having a nice time and had made plans for the weekend. And while they were out there talking, Kay noticed Victor's uh, jewelry that he was wearing, which he always wore, and it was a signet ring, although the initials were not his and um, a gold watch, or a gold, uh, appeared to be a gold watch. And he, they discussed his jewelry and so forth. And so when we found the nude body of Victor Gunnison, uh, a month later, all he was wearing was that watch and ring. And that's one of the ways that we very quickly identified a Victor Gunnison from Kay's description. So, so someone took his clothes or most of his clothes when they killed him? All of his clothes. All of his clothing was gone. Jeez. You're so dealing with something, you're dealing with a wacko out there somewhere. Yeah, definitely. So what, what do you so, do in that yeah. situation? Do you get, like, all the law enforcement people together from the town and say, who do we know that's crazy? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we've all been there long enough that we knew who all the crazy people were. But um, we did not currently have a missing persons report. And like I said, it took us, you know, a few days to... I positively identify the body as Victor Gunnarsson, but one of the first things that we did was start running a missing persons report in the state and the region. And um, after a few hours, we got the um, match on the missing persons report from Salisbury and noted his general physical characteristics seemed to be a match and also that he wore a uh, watching ring similar to what we had found. So... As soon as that came in, we got very optimistic that that was the right person. And I began making contact with the law enforcement in Southbury, and, and I started learning all the bizarre things associated with Victor Vanderson. Now, Kay had a, a former boyfriend who was also in she law did. enforcement, correct? 
Yeah, and I was actually engaged to him for a short period of time. Um, his name was Lamont Plaxton, or L.C. Underwood, and he had dated Kay for about three years in the past and was uh, a veteran uh, law enforcement officer, had about 19 and a half years in, the last eight being with Salisbury Police Department. Hmm. And um, she had recently... Well, actually, over a period of time, she had tried to break up with him, and he wasn't one to take no for an answer. And he had a, he had been stalking her, but Kay was not aware of that. No, I probably wouldn't be. Until later. Because she turns to him, does I mean, here she's pretty desperate. Her mother's been murdered. Her boyfriend's uh, been killed. Uh, there's people harassing her. And she turns to her former boyfriend, her former fiancé, whatever you want to call him, a law yes. enforcement guy. Doesn't he promise her he's going to get to the bottom of this? Right. From everything from the threats that she had received that um, she still was at a loss as to who was doing that. And um, although some of the investigators suspected Underwood early on because he was actually physically present with her at some of the times she would receive the the anonymous threatening calls, she she thought there's no way he could do this, there's no way it could be him. No, not a, no, especially being a law enforcement guy, you wouldn't think he'd do something like that. Right, right. You wouldn't you wouldn't think. That's as close as you are wrong you can be. <laughs> right. Right. Well this I mean so this gets stranger all the time. How how much of the case was spent pursuing the angle that it had some sort of political connection? Well, we continued to pursue that throughout the investigation as we could, um, but the the circumstantial evidence began to really pile up against Underwood, so it was kind of a dual-track investigation for a while, and uh, most of the information we received concerning the Swedish incident, we would get, and I would read over late at night at home um, because it would come in writing or report form, and uh, I would have phone conversations, um, you know, after hours, and during the days we would spend interviewing people in, in Salisbury and so forth and focusing on Underwood. So it was kind of a dual investigation the entire, the entire almost four years. How many years? Four years. Almost four by the time we went to trial. Wow. Um, yeah. Mark Boyer has a question for you. Mark, oh, yeah, I'm over okay. here in the corner. Um, when you started to look at Underwood, um, yes. what did your investi investigation uncover about the man? Well, we started with um, with as much of his background as we could, and certainly Kay Whedon shed a lot of light on their relationship. But going backwards from there, we, um, we followed his life all the way from birth, and he was... Uh, at a very early age, abandoned by both of his parents. Mm. And um, we, as we interviewed family members, the story was just, was just tragic. Um, when he was with his mother and father, they would go partying and often set him and his little sister, at, and they were toddlers at the time, um, this, as the stories go. They, they would just set them out on a sidewalk on a street corner and they would go into bars, either partying or whatever. And um, did not take care of him. Um, they were abusive. They were both uh, heavy drinkers. And then there's one story in the book about how he spent Christmas with his brother and sister in the barn because his parents were fighting and Santa Claus never came. Jeez. And well, I, I don't they, blame Santa. I have a fear of drunks. So Santa's like me. He's not going to show up. 
<laughs> well, he didn't for them. And um, after that, he went to live with an aunt and uncle, and the uncle was physically and mentally abusive. Oh, great. Um, some horrible stories there. And then when they got tired of dealing with him, they took him to an orphanage in the city of Winston-Salem. That's actually not far from where I live now. And um, he lived there until he turned 18, and the day he turned 18, he left the orphanage. What a horrible life. Yes. Well, obviously the guy has abandonment issues. He probably didn't take too kindly to uh, Kay breaking up with him. He did not, and she was, uh, he had had several girlfriends in the past because he's in his 40s by this point, and and marriages that failed. And the abandonment issue was, you know, a thread all the way through his adult life. I would imagine so. And he so. became very physically abusive. <clears throat> if a kid goes through that though, that kind of continual rejection and abandonment, he's always he's going to be obsessive about it. And he was very obsessive. <clears throat> so the bottom oh. line, if I can follow through on this, <clears throat> <excuse Sure. me. clears throat> sorry about that, is that here's this guy that's been rejected, abused, Abandoned continually. It's like a never-ending right. loop of misery. He's an but adult. Much of it was at his own his own fault because uh, he was he was just so um, obsessive and jealous and and uh, controlling that no one could have a successful relationship with him. So yes, those issues were present, but they were also his own making. Yeah, it was a tragic story, no matter how you look at it. So as the bottom right. line is that this guy is so ticked off. And so controlling and so upset that when she's trying to break up with him, he's making her life a living hell. Absolutely. Well, that the certainly has a way to, to win a woman, all right. Make him miserable. <laughs> exactly. The more she, the more she tried to get away from him, the the worse he became, the worse he behaved, and the more controlling he became. And his stalking was just relentless. Wow. Don't they? Do they have any mental health therapists in that little town? So. As a police officer, he eventually got in trouble and, well, let me back up just a minute. He, when he went from agency to agency, he would stay until he would get in trouble over some woman, whether it was vandalizing her home or embarrassing her in some way or beating her. Mm. He would get in trouble with that agency and move on to another agency. Now, that never should have happened, and hopefully that wouldn't happen today because we have much better documentation. But... Um, and more thorough background investigations before hiring. Oh, yeah. But well, that's like uh, Frank Gerardo uh, wrote this great book that's also from Wild Blue Press called Burned about yes. the uh, the firefighter who was starting the fires. Now, right. he, he'd applied to be a, a cop, and they turned him down because he was nuts, but the fire department hired him because you know, they didn't right. have that communication between the two, you know? That's that's correct, and that's that's uh, historically been a been a major problem, and I have a real problem with that. Being a law enforcement professional, you know, thirty some years, and um, we go we get court orders and go look at personnel files and they're empty. So we had to do things the hard way. We had to go find people and interview them and so forth. But um, back to your question, by the time he got to Salisbury, and like I said, he'd been there about eight years. He was talking to his friends knew about it, other officers knew about it. They started reporting in. And um, there was an incident where she was with, she was on a date, a first date with, with uh, another man. And they were in a restaurant, and LC had followed her there. 
or found her there and went in and made a scene and ended up dumping a glass of iced tea in oh, her lap geez. and so forth. So he was suspended from the police department, and that was the end of November. And, the, of course, the, the kidnapping and the homicides took place um, the, uh, at the end of the first week of December. So he had been suspended from the police department for his behavior, and they had there had been a couple of sock evals that um, had been done along the way in previous months, but he was suspended when um, the homicides were occurring, and so he had nothing to lose at that point. Mark has a, mind. Mark has another question for you, Eddie. Okay. In, in general, in general, um, if a prospective employer calls a prior employer, the prior employer isn't allowed to discuss details outside of, yes, they were employed there. Is it any different if you, if you talk from one police department to the next? Well, actually, that's true, but no one would hire someone if they could not complete a background investigation. So what the candidate will do if they're interested in being hired, they will sign a release. And then any question can be answered, and you know any question can be asked, and the entire personnel file can be disclosed. Okay, that's interesting. That it is. Uh, <clears throat> when I was working for the for uh, LAPD, uh-huh. uh, the turn of the century, <laughs> Which, the eighteen hundreds, <laughs> twenty years ago. Uh, my background uh, in, uh, interview was a highlight of insanity. <laughs> Am I insanity? What? Well, the the poor the poor schmuck is asking me. You know, uh, are you a drug dealer? Do you, do you are you a white a slave, slave trafficker? trafficker? <laughs> uh, uh, how right. many people have you killed? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, after a little bit, I looked at the guy and I said, "Does anyone ever answer yes?" <laughs> <laughs> no, see, I think it was fifteen or sixteen people. I can't quite remember. Yeah, uh, but, but, yeah. yeah, a few have for sure. Well, of course, in New Orleans, that could be accurate. Because I remember <laughs> there was a time in New Orleans where they were they were handing out uh, law enforcement credentials to anybody who'd take the job. It could be a prerequisite. prerequisite. <laughs> could you think like a criminal? You're hired. <laughs> well, typically for law enforcement now, there's, uh, there's psyche valves, there's, of course, drug tests and physical, there's, you know, all, all kinds of background uh, investigation, polygraphs and so forth. Um, and and still, some people can you know get through the cracks, but hopefully they're few and far between these days. Yeah, well, I lived in a small town, and yeah, some great police, a great chief of police, old buddy of mine. Yeah. And then you had a couple people working for him who were absolutely off the charts. <laughs> and it only took <laughs> several years before they were arrested. You know. Oh. But uh, it's it's, <laughs> di- it's difficult sometimes to. Uh, uh, arrest a police officer <laughs> if they're well entrenched. Well, it's not difficult to arrest them. It's difficult to convict them sometimes. <laughs> yes. yes. So it's kind of like uh, getting a malpractice suit against a doctor. The other doctors don't want to testify against them. Right, right. you got to have your ducks in a row, for yeah. sure. And the ducks up there are pretty cold. <laughs> Hard to well, get them in I a thought, row and they're freezing. I thought cold duck was tasty. <laughs> oh, that's a different cold duck, Mark, okay. entirely. <laughs> so it took four years for you to pull this all together. Was how did he feel? Of course, you can't say how he felt. How did he respond to being arrested and charged with these homicides? Um, it was very interesting that day. We had um, 
actually some physical evidence in the form of hair and mitochondrial DNA analysis, which incidentally, this was the first case in North Carolina that mitochondrial DNA analysis was admitted into criminal court. Hmm. But um, we, after we um, uncovered that physical evidence, then we felt that we not only had a strong um, circumstantial case, which we had from early on, but we knew we would only have one shot at the trial. So after we got that, we felt really confident about it and just got together and decided how best to arrest him. He was still on suspension and living at home, and so we made a plan for arresting him at his home, and then our backup plan was that if he left, we would do a felony vehicle stop and arrest him on the road. And that's what happened. He left, and he was arrested um, when his vehicle was stopped uh, shortly, uh, a short distance from his, ha- from his home. So we went to, we met, we were on our way down to take part in the arrest when um, they called and said that they had just arrested him because he had left his house. So on the way back, so on the way back from Salisbury, we had him in custody, and I was sitting in the back seat of the car beside him, and then um, an FBI agent and our elected sheriff was in the front seat, our sheriff was driving. He, he chose me, I think, because, uh, A, his opinion of women was pretty low, and yeah. he had been fairly successful at manipulating women in the past, and I was also the youngest at the time, and I thought... he start hitting he, on you? No, he didn't hit on me, but he would not talk to anyone else. Ah. And so he decides he's going to talk to me. So we're riding in the car up the, up the mountain on this two-hour drive, and he says, um, would you ask the sheriff if he would um, turn the air condition up or down or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And just as if the other people in the car could not hear him, he would only speak to me. So he's very patronizing to me. And... Um, He's even critical of the way the handcuffs were placed on him and so forth, as if he is, you know, the the expert on custodial procedures. Mm-hmm. So well, he was, was complaining about the the legal per the uh, so the operational procedures of his own arrest, because he was in law enforcement. He knew better about it than you did. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And so he was my best friend for a few days until we had a bond reduction hearing because once he was in custody, he was given no bond. So once his attorneys were appointed, and he was appointed too because it was a capital murder case, and once those were appointed, we had a they had petitioned the court for an, um, a bond reduction hearing stating that he was not a flight risk and so forth. And after I testified at that bond reduction hearing that I thought he was dangerous and he was a flight risk and so forth, all of a sudden he hated my guts. And he I, me some what a surprise. Things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I hear I thought he was, had got a sweet on you there for a bit. Yeah, <laughs> Probably was well, sweet on you when he thought he could manipulate you. Probably. Yeah, he, he had no feeling, no genuine feeling whatsoever. I mean, I think I described in the book his eyes and so forth, but the man had absolutely no conscience. And yeah. um, Eyes like was, a goat, as uh, Dr. Robert yeah. here would say about psychopaths. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, just like that. Yeah, they don't look human. He did not. There were a few, a few moments that I had with him, just he and I, and he definitely... Um, there was nothing going on behind those eyes. Uh, nothing of it, nothing good anyway. Yeah, it's interesting is there was always, well, we should study these people. You know, they're very probably very complex, but it turns out they're very shallow. Right. There's not much there. And what is there isn't that healthy, unfortunately. Yeah, very, very, everything about him was dysfunctional and just 
totally messed up. All right, so he had, uh, this is Mark over in the corner again. <laughs> we let him out of the corner every yeah, once he, in a while. Yeah, he, uh, he's in law enforcement for 19 years. He has he multiple is. relationships where he demonstrates sociopathic tendencies. What, yes. what was the trigger this time that took him from harassment to murder? You know, he, he eventually, uh, in his other abusive relationships, he, he eventually was able to move on. For whatever reason, he could not get over Kay. He, he could not accept the fact that she did not want to be in a relationship with him. Um, although he seemed to hate her son, he seemed to hate her mother, although he denied it extensively. And well, he killed he, her, that's probably a good indication he didn't like her very much. So she was in the way. Oh. She was a support person. Kay. Yes, Kay, Kay was an only child, and her, and she and her mother were very close. And um, Underwood, having been abandoned by his own mother, had serious problems and issues yeah, with that. So, uh, what uh, was I her son, uh, Jason? Jason. I'm sorry? What was her son's name? Jason. Yeah, okay, so he uh, Underwood spent um, you know a lot of energy trying to deflect suspicion from him to Jason. Yes. That doesn't sound he, very convincing to me. He, he did. We felt like he was um, setting Jason up for a couple of things um, to blame him for whatever homicide would occur and also to um, say that he was a, he dealt drugs, which, I mean, which was not true, or that he used drugs and owed drug dealers money. That was not true, and that was pretty easy to, um, to confirm. But... We felt like that Jason's life was very much in danger, and that and that Elsie wanted wanted Jason out of the picture as well. Well, I would he say you're, that, you're absolutely right about that because didn't he fire a gun right into the house and almost killed the kid? Almost. He did, and, and the interesting thing about that is it probably would have killed Jason had Elsie not known that they had just rearranged the furniture and moved Jason's bed from where Elsie knew it to be. Wow, is that fortunate? Yes. Yeah. Divine intervention. Yeah, I was just going to say that. That's divine intervention right there. No question. Yeah. Although I wish the divine would have intervened uh, before he killed these other two people. Right, right. That's, uh, it just boggles my mind at how messed up human beings can become. Yes, yeah, it's, it's frightening and, and very disturbing. Very, it's very disturbing. Well, the thing of all the years that he worked in law enforcement, you'd think the people who worked with him would say, you know, I think this guy's nuts. Well, and they did, but instead of reporting it, they would just avoid him, or they would make jokes out of it. He was very um, obsessive-compulsive when it came to cleanliness, for one thing, and they all laughed at him because he would even armor all the hoses in the engine of his car, so they would say, you can hear him coming from a mile down the road because his, his engine squeaked, because he armor all them, and... You know, so he was kind of a joke. Um, he, he he was very particular about his uniform, which his supervisors liked. He kept his car very neat and clean, which his supervisors liked. But he was way over the top with his with his vehicle and his home. He's kind of like Barney Fife on steroids. <laughs> yeah. well, Barney Fife remember, was, was not. OCD. You remember that movie, um, uh, Sleeping with the Enemy? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, well, that, was, that was Underwood. When we walked into his house, that could have been the same guy. Oh, yeah, that guy was nuts, too. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I saw Sleeping with Emily, but that was a different movie entirely. Uh, no. <laughs> I'm not familiar with that one. Well, you're lucky. Well, why, why, I would suspect so. <laughs> Girl, you should be ashamed. I, well, I, it was on a video cassette. What do I know? <laughs> I've never seen these people act before. Uh, they were very good. Either. Acting? I, I don't think you'd call it acting. Okay. They were responding. <laughs> they were the first responders. <laughs> they had to keep responding over and over again. Take two. Uh, so you got this guy. What kind of defense did they mount for him? Interestingly enough, the defense rested at the close of state's evidence. Their only hope being that the jury wasn't convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that he was guilty of murdering, kidnapping and murdering Victor Gunners. That's fascinating. No evidence of any kind. That's just, is that odd? No. Now, at the beginning of the trial, they said, we'll be presenting this, this, and such and such witness, but then they did not. And they were banking on the, the, the jury pool that we had being um, sympathetic to him because of the abuse and so forth, mm -hmm. but it didn't work out for them. They found him guilty of first-degree kidnapping of Victor Gunnarsson and first-degree murder. And then we moved into the sentencing hearing, and the prosecution was asking for the death penalty. But um, the jury was 11 to 1 for death, and so because it was not unanimous, he received life sentence, which basically amounted to 20 years for the um, murder and an additional 40 years on top of that. Just to make sure he didn't get out too soon, yeah. Right. Yeah, he tried many uh, appeal attempts. Uh, he sure did. You know, poor representation, uh, um, evidence not presented to the defense, that kind of thing. Right. That took years also. Yes. Well, you got, um, if you're facing a potential death penalty, you're going to try to stall it as long as you can. Sure. Past death, if possible. <laughs> well, right, he, he died right. anyway. So, well, of course, I mean, you're going to die anyway, but you know, you, try, you, you don't want to have it come rushing at you too soon. Of course, for him, right, you want to know when it's coming, I guess. Yeah. Well, he had it coming, all right. He did. He did have it coming. So maybe in his in his twisted thinking, he figured, well, if, this should be pretty simple. If I can kill the mother and then kill the boyfriend, it leaves it wide open for her to embrace me. Right. And no one right. there to... Uh... And you know what? He was almost successful because she did turn to him, uh, at least temporarily, because she wanted somebody on the inside that would tell her what was going on with the investigation and try to help her figure out, you know, what was happening in her life. Boy, how, was she, how did she deal with all this? Did she completely fall apart in all this? You know what? She's um, she's very strong, but her life has been miserable. She has always lived in fear of Underwood getting out of prison mm -hmm. and coming after her, as he stated very plainly that he would. I think one of the FBI agents and, and me, I think we were on the top of his list, but um, certainly she had reason to be afraid of him getting out, and um, her life has been... Has just just been one of fear, and she became um, somewhat estranged from her son. They never lost complete contact, but it certainly hampered their relationship because I think there was some blaming going on um, for him losing his grandmother and Kate introducing Underwood into their lives and, right. and so forth. But no one is to blame but Underwood for what happened, and everything else was just. 
know, collateral damage. Yeah. Yes. It's such a tragic story. Now you you do this for a living. I mean, I write about it for a living, but you live it for a living. Quite right. a difference. I have. I just just retired, but yes, and I, I still am on with the police department to keep my certification. Uh, I'm a little young to to lose it, I'm afraid. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I I got my thirty years in. <laughs> You get like a little ribbon or something you can wear. It's like a participation ribbon for thirty years. <laughs> um, I, I've got I got plenty of things to pin on my uniform. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. You kind of like being in the Girl Scouts. <laughs> <laughs> I had lots of merit badges. Yeah, but you, you had merit badges of the Girl Scouts, Mark. Yes, I did. Yeah, I bet you did. <laughs> you were rubbing two Boy Scouts together. <laughs> Wow. Uh, was this, looking back on your brilliant career, and uh, <laughs> would you say this is the strangest story that you had to deal with? I'd say it was the, the most unusual single case that I had to deal with. Um, there have been lots of strange things in 30 years of law enforcement, but as far as one case and having so many twists and turns and uh, so many different angles and, and interesting people. I mean, we interviewed hundreds of people. I met hundreds of people in this case uh, all across the board. So it was by far the most intriguing. And I, I just, it's the only one that I felt really super compelled to write about. I can certainly understand why. And as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, it's already rated number one in everything except decoupage and macrame. I told, <laughs> told you, bro, it's third. <laughs> it was third in macrame. <laughs> Fourth and decoupage. Hey, Farrell. Underwater basket weaving. Yeah, let's talk about the book. If we were talking about the case, we should tell people where to buy the book. Uh, buy yeah, let's we'll do that. That's, yeah, let's tell them. <laughs> buy the book. <laughs> it's called <laughs> First, first Degree Rage. First Degree Rage. Palame. The True Crime Story of the Assassin and Obsession and Murder. You should put an S on the end of that. Murders. Right. Now, this Victor Gunnarsson, who was... Uh, the guy who tried to kill the uh, prime minister of uh, Sweden, the guy with the nutcase. He was a nice-looking guy. No wonder she liked him. Kind of looked oh, like he was uh, very handsome. Yeah, kind of looked like uh, you know Burt Reynolds or Tom Selleck or somebody. He, he does. Yeah, uh, that's earlier. Like porn star mustache. Yeah, he has a porn star mustache, but you know, I thought it was Mark Spitz. Yes, that kind of, okay, you know, that was a popular look back then. Uh, the other guy, Lamont uh, Cranston, whatever his name is. Gunderson. Oh, okay. Lamont Claxton L.C. Underwood. Uh, he looks kind of harmless in the picture. He does look harmless, except for his eyes, except for his super dark eyes. Yeah. But he was neat and, well, you know, clean cut. He was a police officer. So he does look harmless to a degree. So, uh, you know, that's the thing about being a law enforcement officer is sometimes it puts you above suspicion. Unfortunately, yes, in uh, this case. Or in the case of there was the, uh, I guess it was in France, where you had a, uh, a former criminal became a very famous true crime writer, and uh, he was writing about this uh, ongoing case. He was like the big expert on it, writing about the newspaper. It turned out he was the criminal. He was the guy who was, he was the murderer. <laughs> No wonder he wrote right. such good articles about it. Right, hence having all the details. Yeah, the things the cops didn't know he was able to fill in. <laughs> Thank you so much for that information. <laughs> yeah, the book is called First Degree Rage, True Crime Story of the Assassin, an Obsession, and Murder. And I can see where this case must have driven you crazy for at least three of the four years, trying to pull the pieces together. 
That's without any real hard evidence. Right. Yeah, never finding the weapons. Yeah, that was my next question. The guy obviously had access to uh, firepower. Oh, yes, extensive extensive guns, but interestingly enough, any of them that could have been the murder weapon for Captain Miller or Victor Gunnerson disappeared very shortly after these murders. What a surprise. Right. Yeah, uh, wasn't there an attempt to uh, establish transfer of ownership in some kind of a <laughs> yes. recording? Um, yes, that was came up. We did not even know about that until the, um, the middle of the trial, but he tried to get... Um, his uh, his criminal uh, friend to acknowledge receipt of one of the guns or both of the guns um, by uh, voice recording and uh, made a tape to that effect. And interestingly enough, it came up in the trial. And um, so his attorneys found themselves answering questions of the judge about the existence of that evidence and where it was and if there had been tampering of that and so forth. But it was never produced. Hmm. Well, the thing is, the guy did get arrested. He did go to prison. He did try to claim yes. ineffective counsel. But, he uh, did, but didn't, it didn't, uh, didn't work. Didn't work. Right. Uh, it, it worked a couple of times temporarily. But ultimately, right. uh, the uh, appeals court said there was more than enough evidence to convict. Right. Uh, and that the extenuating circumstances of the request wouldn't have changed the verdict. Yeah. Right. Thankfully. It reminds me, we were discussing the uh, last week, and we had Erin Moriarty on. She, she's always kind of stunned by this one. The, the fellow who was convicted of a crime he was never charged with. <laughs> and, of course, he objected to that most heartily. He thought, <laughs> but wait, I was never even charged with that crime. Well, how come I? And the, uh, an appeal, the court said, well, yeah, you're right. <laughs> we shouldn't have done that. But we're going to let it stand anyway. <laughs> Fortunately, it was just a huge fine, like $50,000, which the guy didn't have anyway, so he didn't have to pay it. But oh, it was yeah. just kind of peculiar for someone to the jury bring back a guilty verdict to some guy who wasn't charged with anything in the beginning. <laughs> you don't hear that very often. Um, there's, there's, there's circumstantial evidence also that uh, Underwood may have tried to kill someone else but was fortunate not to have killed herself. Really? I missed that. Yeah, Beth. Beth? Was that one of his other girlfriends? Well, he, he, um, yes, he, um, we believe that he attempted to kill her and would have been successful except for, again, some divine intervention. Um, and that was after he was well known as a suspect in uh, both of these cases, but before we were able to make it to an arrest to arrest him. Wow, I bet uh, yeah. the law enforcement body there, whatever uh, he was in, I bet they get a little more stringent on their hiring practices. Well, hopefully that has uh, that has drastically improved since then. But I got to tell you, I was pretty upset at uh, some of what I did not find and then had to go and find it the hard way. And I know there was one uh, head of an agency, and I'm like, why is none of this in his file? And he said, I prefer to handle things in person rather than um, on paper, you know, as if that was some kind of justification. Well, in that case, you don't have any record of it. No, no one's going to know. Right, and, and I don't think he did anything in person anyway. I mean, besides a lecture, maybe, he uh, was never suspended that we could find. No, he was or, lucky he wasn't suspended or, by his neck. 
Exactly. I mean, that is really strange, however, because if there's no record of it, you know, he goes to you know, go to Human Resources and see what's in their file. Well, they tried to murder his girlfriend, but we let that slide. You know. Yes. Uh, or he put her in the hospital for two or three days and because he had uh, busted a pot over her head. Whoa. Ooh. That reminds me of a reminds me of a story. <laughs> Here, I have time. I'll squeeze this one in real quick. You'll you'll enjoy this. There was a fellow who had a very bad reputation as far as his dealing with women. Got along great with guys, but every girl that he dated wound up with a broken jaw because he'd haul off and just smack them, bam, break their jaw, three in a row, bam, bam, bam. So this uh, girl girl comes to me and says. Uh, we got to go talk to Sally over here because Sally started dating this guy, and every woman he's dated, he's broken her jaw. So we go to lunch with Sally and say, you know, Sally, uh, you don't have anything that all his previous girlfriends have in common? Their jaws wired shut? <laughs> I mean, does that tell you something? And uh, sure enough, two days later, he hauls off and breaks her jaw. Who's oh, the first? Yeah. Who's his new girlfriend? The one that went to warn Sally. Excuse wow. me? Yeah. The one who went to warn Sally immediately becomes his new girlfriend. However, when he uh, pulls a gun out and shoots at the car in front of him and cripples the uh, driver and she's arrested for being an accomplice, uh, I said to her, uh, how come you two are so close? I said, didn't he ever uh, threaten to break your jaw? She says, no. I said, why not? She said, I never disagreed with him as long as I didn't. Never disagreed with him. We were right. fine. So how long do you think you can keep that up? <laughs> right. Sooner or later, you're going to disagree about something. Mm-hmm. And be lucky if a jaw gets broken. Yeah, really. Something uh, else that fascinated me about this case, and that's from somebody on the outside, the interdepartmental cooperation yes. that happened in this case. And now, correct me... Um, dramatizations always show friction between different departments. That, is, that isn't what it's like in the real life, is it? I can't speak for other people and their working relationships, but I can tell you the four of us um, were a team from the beginning. And um, four very unique personalities, but um, I think really highly of all of them. And uh, they're all... Uh, professionals and um, you know good ethics good, good good work ethic and everybody wanted to do the right thing and when everybody has a common goal it makes working together that's, easier that's, that's true you that's look and say who, you're, who are your friends here who are the people on your team you may not right. always agree with them you may not always get along with them but when right. the cosmic push comes to shove who's on your side you know. That's right, and we didn't agree on everything, but but we worked together very well because we were um, we all had that common common purpose. Yeah, united in there, an over overarching uh, common goal and purpose makes all the difference. And it's good to have people you disagree with. Good to have people you sure. don't get along with because you're going to get all the different perspectives that'll help solve the case. And it's especially helpful in uh, criminal investigation. Yeah, it's also helpful if you got a cop that can think like a criminal. <laughs> that helps too. <laughs> yeah, well, that's you know, that's the one thing that every criminal that we've had on the show, and we do have a few resident criminals, such as our buddy uh, Punch, the uh, world's second greatest gentleman diamond thief in the history of America. Uh, he says the, the the only guy that ever caught him was a guy that says, "Boy, I would love to have him on my crew." 
Says he, he, he thought just like they did. Hey, we got a scoop. Let me plug your book again here. Buy it, read it, believe it. First degree rage. Yeah. Paula May. Thank Paula you so May. Thank you, Paula. Thanks, guys. Okay, great having you on the show. Go write another book and we'll have you back. Burrow. Yeah. What's next? Magic Man Allen, the Demons of Decadence, live in the Lightning of Loud. Allen Radio Live. Dot com. Thank you.